0: So we'll be reading from Exodus 6, verses 2 to 7, and I'll be reading from the NIV. Uh, If you don't have a phone or a Bible, there are Bibles behind the pews for you. And I'll just pray before we read. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be here this morning, Lord, uh, communing with all our brothers and sisters around us, uh, joyful and and ready to hear from your Word. So, Lord, I just pray that you open our hearts, our minds Um, to to hear your word and to apply your word so that we be doers of your word and not solely listeners, Lord. And Lord, this I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Just before we uh, get back into the word, I'd like to ask you, if you would, later today and this evening to pray for my lovely wife, who is at home today uh, going through the preparation regimen for a medical procedure that will be happening in the morning tomorrow. We hope will be simply uneventful, uh, but please pray for her if you would. Let's pray, uh, and then we'll get back into Exodus here. Our Father, we give you praise because you are worthy of praise, especially because you have sent Jesus Christ into the world to be born and live and die and be raised to ascend and to come back, Lord, in the future. The whole complex has been orchestrated by you. We give you thanks for the Holy Spirit that lives inside us as believers leading us along the path of righteousness for your sake, convicting us of sin, bringing comfort to us when comfort is what is needed. We thank you that you walk with us every day, 24 hours a day, that you are available to us in prayer all the time, in the midnight hour or whenever it is that we need to uh, commune with you and speak with you. Lord, thank you for your word. As we open it again, we pray your blessing upon it, that your Holy Spirit would now come and act and work powerfully in our lives. For your sake, amen. (laughs) Scholars who write academic books will sometimes include in their books what is called an excursus. Right in the middle of the chapter, they will include an excursus. What's an excursus? An excursus, as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it, is an appendix or digression that contains further exposition of some point or topic. Or as the Oxford Dictionary defines it, an excursus is a detailed discussion of a particular point, a particular point in a book, usually in an appendix. Well, friends, today's sermon can be considered something of and excursus. In other words, before we move away from the plague narrative that we looked at or we began looking at last week, before we move from there to other things in Exodus, we want to pause here today and discuss in some greater detail the nature of the plagues that God sent in Egypt in the book of Exodus. How shall we understand the plagues? of Exodus 7 through 12. That's the question today. Last week, we highlighted the fact that the plagues played an educational role. If you were with us last week, that's what we really concentrated on, an educational role. The plagues were the means by which Yahweh educated Pharaoh and educated Egypt and Israel and you and I concerning Yahweh himself, his power, his incomparability, etc. And most certainly, I think, in any study of the plagues, the educational role of the plagues should be of paramount importance. But is there more going on with the plagues? What I want to do with our time together this morning is to suggest to you two more layers or two more theological aspects of the plagues that I think may be quite important. But having said that, I also want to give my caveat up front, which is that both of the models that I'm going to suggest have certain weaknesses about them. They're not necessarily watertight proposals, but nevertheless, I think they have enough going for them that I want to share them with you today as a way to help us deepen even further into this narrative of Exodus. Before we get to the two models, I first want us to think through some introductory stuff on the structure of the plague narrative that I think is rather interesting. It was the Jewish rabbi Samuel ben Meir, who lived in the 12th century, also otherwise known as Rashbaum, who first notice with the plagues that there was a certain pattern in the way that they are structured in the book of Exodus. If we divide the first nine plagues into three groups of three, so plagues one, two, and three are the first group, four, five, and six, the second group, and seven, eight, nine, the last group, what Rashbaum, the rabbi, noticed is that in the first two plagues of each group, Pharaoh gets warned that if he doesn't let Israel go, then the plague will come down on Egypt. But then in the third plague in each of the three groups, there is no warning to Pharaoh. The plague just simply strikes without any warning. So it does seem that there was a particular structure with the first nine plagues. The tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, is separated off From the other nine, the 10th plague we can consider as climactic in nature, and it has many aspects about it that sort of set it off from the other nine. But with the first nine, there does appear to be this purposeful structure in the book of Exodus. That's the first thing. Well, from the 1950s onward, Another theory about the structure of the plagues in Exodus began to get a whole lot of discussion in the literature, and that was the theory of a scholar named Greta Hort. Greta Hort wrote a piece called, simply, The Plagues of Egypt. Hort argued that especially with the first six plagues, a naturalistic explanation would suffice. That is, these plagues can all be explained, she said, by naturally occurring, the sort of naturally occurring chain of events. And the typical argument here goes something like this. The first plague, which is the Nile turning to blood, can be explained by the fact that at the sources of the Nile River, so at the Blue Nile and at the Atbara River, there must have been an exceptional amount of rain so that the rivers overflowed their banks and picked up huge amounts of red earth and also a massive number of a deep red flagellate known as, in scientific terminology, Euglena sanguinea, don't ask me to say that twice, a deep red flagellate, so that the red clay and the massive numbers of these red flagellates would account for the Nile looking like it was blood. And then the presence of the flagellate would also bring the oxygen level in the river up, out of balance, accounting for the dead fish that the text says washed up onto the banks where the frogs lived. The frogs were infected by the dead fish, and then the frogs moved out to areas that were cooler, like Egyptian homes, where they died because of their infection. And then the third and fourth plagues, lice and flies. Well, with all the dead frogs lying around, with all the standing water because of the the great flood of the Nile, it was all prime breeding ground for lice and for flies, so the theory goes. And the flies, according to the theory, were actually a kind of horsefly, now infected with the anthrax that had killed the fish and the frogs, and these infected horseflies then went about biting both livestock and people, accounting for plague five, pestilence among livestock, and plague six, boils or lesions on human beings. The naturalistic theory of the plagues. Well, as impressive as that theory may sound to some of us, I don't buy it. Why? Simply because there are just way too many assumptions in the theory to make it work, for one. And secondly, it does not deal effectively, we may have noticed, with plagues seven through ten. For example, how, I would ask, with this natural chain of events in mind, how does one get from boils on human beings, the sixth plague, to hail, the seventh plague? You can't. The theory seems to break down there. And then also we have to reckon with the fact very seriously that the Bible does not give us even the the slightest hint that we are to understand the plagues in this chain of events sort of way that Hort and others have proposed. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us that far from a simple chain of natural events, the plagues were in fact divine occurrences, amen, brought on in several cases by the agents of God, Moses and Aaron. The clear claim of the Bible is that the plagues were all products of God manipulating the natural world in a miraculous staggering sort of way that cannot be explained with natural sorts of of explanations. All right, so if we rule out Hort's naturalistic theory, which I think we should, how shall we understand the plagues? Let's move now to the two layers of meaning that I promised earlier. Aside from last week's point, That's undeniably the case, I think, that the plagues are the means of educating the nations as to who Yahweh is. What else is going on with the plagues? Let's look at two other layers of meaning in the plagues. And again, we want to look at both of these very soberly. As attractive as they are, and I think they are, as right as they may indeed be, even here there are weaknesses, which I'm going to get to a little later on. So the first layer of meaning is this, that the plagues may be taken as Yahweh's attacks on Egypt's gods. The plagues in Egypt may be understood as specific attacks, attacks on Egypt's gods. And there is some scriptural support for this view. Numbers 33.4 is a verse that recounts the time when Israel left Egypt. Numbers 33.4 tells us that Israel left Egypt just as the Egyptians were burying their firstborn because of the 10th plague. And at the end of that verse, we have this interesting little sentence about the Egyptians. It says this, On their gods also, Yahweh... The Lord executed judgments on their gods also Yahweh executed judgments. Could it be then that we are to understand each plague as a judgment that Yahweh executed on a specific Egyptian god or gods? Many have argued that this is indeed the case. For example, in the first plague, As God turned the Nile water into blood, was this a judgment on the Egyptian god Khnum? Say that ten times. Khnum. Who was also known, Khnum was, as the guardian of the Nile. Clearly, Khnum had failed in his guardianship of the Nile as Yahweh turned the Nile to blood. Or was the first plague also a judgment against the Egyptian god, and I think the pronunciation is happy, (laughs) H-A-P-I, who was known as the spirit of the Nile? See, the Egyptians had a whole range of gods. Or can the first plague be understood further as a judgment against the god Osiris, who it was believed had the Nile as his bloodstream? it is at least possible to understand the first plague as Yahweh executing judgment on two or three Egyptian gods. Well, what about plague two, the frogs? There was an Egyptian goddess named Heket who was represented as a frog and who was known as the goddess of childbirth. Very interestingly, Heket was thought to bring help to Egyptian women during childbirth. Could the plague of frogs be a judgment against the frog goddess? Could it be that Yahweh in the second plague was toying with the goddess of childbirth? You want childbirth? I'll give it to you. Here are millions of frogs. Deal with it. Other examples. plague seven and eight. Hail and then locusts. Plague seven and eight. The hail rained down like bullets, destroying Egyptian crops, and whatever vegetation was not destroyed by the hail was taken care of in the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. The Egyptian god Seth was believed to be the protector of crops. Had he failed? when hail and locusts inundated Egypt. And the Egyptian god Isis was the goddess of life, who was said to grind and spin flax and weave cloth. Now she was without materials to work with after Plagues 7 and 8 came and destroyed all the crops. And then also the Egyptians, this one's interesting, they had a god called Min, to whom an Egyptian annual celebration was devoted. Min was a god of fertility and vegetation and also a protector of crops. At harvest time every year, Min was celebrated. But look at the text. According to Exodus 9.31, it is very specific there. The flax and barley were struck down by the hail plague. Min's annual celebration was ruined because the crops he was supposed to protect had been devastated and now the locusts were finishing off whatever was left over. Were Plagues 7 and 8 a direct attack on Seth, Isis, and or Min? Perhaps, perhaps. One last example, Plague 9. The Plague of Palpable darkness. A darkness, says the text, that could be felt. Egypt had three or four sun gods. Amon, re Aten, Atom, and Horus. When the lights went out, when a darkness that could be felt descended over Egypt, had the sun gods gone on vacation. Now, the interesting thing here is that the Egyptians also believed in a fearsome serpent creature named Apophis. Apophis symbolized darkness, and it was believed that he was the embodiment of bad tidings. Every day in Egypt, when the sun rose the Egyptians would be very relieved. They believed that as the sun made its way across the sky every day to set at night, every day that as it moved across the sky, it was being hounded by Apophis, who was trying to destroy the sun. So every day when the sun rose, it was taken as a victory of the sun gods over Apophis so that when Exodus 10 tells us that the plague of thick, black, velvet darkness lasted three days in Egypt, it would have terrified the Egyptians. Had Apophis finally defeated the sun gods? Had the dark power finally won out? plagues can be taken as Yahweh's attacks on Egypt's gods. Now, again, I think there is some merit in this approach, to be sure. But having said that, we need to talk about the weaknesses of this approach. Weakness number one is this, that we can't assign specific Egyptian gods to all ten of the plagues. Specifically, Plague 3, lice, Plague 4, flies, and Plague 6, boils, do not seem to corroborate or match up with any specific Egyptian god or gods. So that's a little bit of a problem for this approach. Second, as it was with the naturalistic theory we talked about with Greta Hort, so it is here. The text of Exodus is nowhere explicit like we might want it to be explicit that we should understand the plagues as attacks on Egypt's gods other than maybe Exodus 12:12 12, 12, where we have God saying that the 10th plague is somehow to be understood as his judgment of Egypt's gods other than that the text doesn't spell out for us like we may want it to that we're on the right track in assigning Egyptian gods to each plague. So that maybe that should give us some caution with this approach. I like the approach. I think there's some truth to it. But at the end of the day, it's best to think of it as just a layer in understanding the plagues and maybe not the primary thing. Well, that leaves us with the second and last layer, which is simply this that the plagues can be understood also as reversals of creation. Reversals of creation. And here I'm borrowing almost entirely from the excellent work of a scholar named Zioni Zevit. The plagues can be understood as a reversal of the Genesis 1 creation. The plagues are chaos that proceeds from God's orderly creation instead of order that proceeded from chaos like it was back in Genesis 1. And here I think it may be helpful to talk just for a minute about the ancient Egyptian concept of ma'at. What was the ancient Egyptian concept of ma'at? Ma'at was in Egyptian thinking, a state or a condition of order and rightness and harmony and justice. That's what Ma'at was. As the biblical commentator Bruce Wells describes it, he says, Ma'at was the idea of a meaningful, all-pervasive order that embraces the world of humankind, objects, and nature. In short, the meaning of creation, that's what ma'at was, the form in which it was intended by the creator God, close quote. Now the thing is for us to understand that for the Egyptians, it was Pharaoh of Egypt who was responsible to maintain ma'at Pharaoh was tasked with ensuring that Ma'at was preserved in Egypt in as full a way as possible. Pharaoh was to weed out injustice, to weed out disorder, to get rid of chaos in Egypt where it existed, in the interest in preserving and maintaining Ma'at. Well, the plagues that Yahweh sent in Egypt were really the embodiment of anti-ma'at. As Wells puts it, the plagues are symbolic of chaos, and they overthrow the right ordering of life so prized by the Egyptians. The plagues, as we're arguing here, can actually be taken as Yahweh's reversals of Yahweh's good ordered creation. They showed that Pharaoh was out of control and that Yahweh was in control, even reversing his own creation, if he so desired. Let's see how this looks. It is a significant thing. Open your Bible. Turn to Exodus 7:19. It's a significant thing in Exodus 7:19, and it won't be in your English Bible. But the Hebrew word mikveh appears in Exodus 7:19 for the first time since Genesis 1:10. The word mikveh means a collection or a gathering together. And in Exodus 7.19, it refers to the whole gathering of waters. In the English Bible, in the middle or so of that verse, you might see the phrase, all their reservoirs, or all their pools. The word mikveh is behind that English translation. It's a reference to the gathering of waters, the collection of waters. The word appeared, in Exodus 7.19, for the first time since Genesis 1.10, in Genesis 1.10, again, it had referred to a gathering of waters at the creation that God called seas. The fact that the word is dropped in here at Exodus 7.19 for the first time since Genesis 1.10 would have alerted readers of the original Hebrew text That something creational was now happening in the first plague. Something cosmic. At the Genesis creation, water is a good thing. Amen? It is a life-giving thing. The mikvah of waters, Genesis 1, was good and it was right. But now at the Nile in Exodus... Death is attached to the mikvah of waters. They turn to blood here and become undrinkable and they kill fish. God is reversing here with the Nile mikvah what he had done with the creational mikvah. This is like a reversal of creation that is happening here in the text. And then plagues two through four, frogs, lice or gnats, and flies. Notice that these are all living creatures. The frogs come out of the water and they multiply and swarm inconveniently throughout Egypt and disgustingly all over Egypt. The lice or gnats creep around and plague their victims, both person and animal. It's a bad thing. Flies, according to Exodus 8.24, Ruined the land of Egypt, being so heavy and so overwhelming as they swarmed around. All three of these plagues can be taken as reversals of the good kind of abundance that Genesis talks about when God created winged creatures, creeping things, and animals. The frogs, lice, and flies that plague Egypt were ma'at, Gone crazy. They were indications that a good creation was being temporarily reversed. These creatures in Egypt were pests in such abundant numbers that no one could control them, including Pharaoh. No one except Yahweh. And then plague five. The pestilence that affected livestock. Where in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam, we remember, had been given dominion over the livestock. Remember? Livestock were a good thing. They'd been given to Adam for his flourishing and benefit. Now in the fifth plague, livestock are taken away from people. The livestock die of pestilence. A further reversal of creation. And then plague 7 and 8 hail and locusts that utterly devastate the crops in Egypt just listen to the rather shocking contrast between the creation text Genesis 1:12 and the report in Exodus 10:15 of the devastation that is wrought by the locust plague creation text Genesis 1:12 reads as follows the earth brought forth vegetation Plants yielding seed. You can just see green vines and trees growing out, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Contrast that with what happens in Exodus 10:15. The locusts covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate. All the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left, not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. So that plague seven and eight appear to be a reversal of creation. And then plague nine, the plague of darkness. At creation, we remember that God had set in motion the daily alteration of light to darkness, light to darkness. He had separated the light from the darkness, to quote Genesis 1-4. But now in Egypt, the pattern of day and night ceased for three 24-hour periods. There was only darkness. It was like things had reverted in Egypt to the time mentioned in Genesis 1-2 when a formless void existed and darkness was over the face of the deep. Plague 9 can be understood as a reversal of creation. And then plague 10, the death of the firstborn. Instead of God pronouncing blessing and life, Over people as he had done at creation. God in the 10th plague. Is destroying people. He is not giving life in Egypt here. But rather he is taking the lives. Of these particular image bearers. So this too seems to be a reversal of sorts. Of creation. Well. In his article on the plagues as reversals of creation, Zioni Zevit also notes, and I think this may be important, he notes that there are ten plagues. Not eight, not nine or eleven, but ten plagues. Why ten specifically and no more and no less? Zevit reminds us that in the creation account of Genesis 1, There are exactly 10 divine speeches that bring the creation into being and order the creation. So one Exodus plague for each of the 10 divine utterances in Genesis 1. Could this be more evidence that we are to understand the 10 plagues as reversals of the very creation that had come about through 10 divine utterances? Well, again... I am convinced that Zebit is certainly on to something with his theory that the plagues can be understood as reversals of creation. But here's the weakness of the argument. The weakness is, again, that some of the plagues just don't seem to fit the pattern. The best example is Plague 6, the Plague of boils. It's hard to see how the Plague of boils is a reversal of creation. As much as Zebit might be correct in seeing the plagues this way, we have to approach it, I think, again with some caution and say that it's not completely watertight and perfect. It may be a layer of what's happening here, but it's not the primary thing. Now, part of what we're doing here with this series in Exodus is, and here's where it gets practical, we're laboring to show that the Bible is perhaps richer more grand, more full of glory, it should take our breath away than we may have thought. When we read a narrative in Scripture, and I hope you're reading Bible narratives each and every day of each and every week, when we read a narrative like the plagues narrative, we may indeed have two or three things going on at the same time. We've said, we've argued that the plague's purpose was to educate the nations concerning Yahweh and who Yahweh is. We've suggested also that the plague's purpose is to attack and defeat the gods of Egypt. And still further, that the plague's purpose may also be to reverse creation. Why? In order to show Pharaoh that his control over Maat is null and void. Pharaoh is not in control. Yahweh is a lesson for us. The true living God is the one who is in control of his creation at all times. Amen. The point is that God has so designed his Bible, and I hope you come on Thursday nights now. He has so designed his Bible that at any given time, you may have two or three dense layers of meaning That are happening. It's the way he's put it together. So let's learn together to read our Bibles well. To deepen into what God has given us in his special revelation, the Bible. So that we can go forth into the world as witnesses to the glory of God that he has given us here. Well, we close now with... It's always dangerous when pastors say that, isn't it? (laughs) Fifteen minutes later. We close now with a yet further aspect of the plague narrative to consider, and I'll promise to be brief here. That is how it connects with the New Testament. Always have to see how the Old Testament connects with the New Testament. At the end of last week's sermon, we touched on this, but let's just see how the Exodus plagues seem to be taken up again, seem to be rehashed in the New Testament book of Revelation. We go to Revelation 16, and what we notice in Revelation 16 is that at least five of the ten Exodus plagues are reused, re-employed. Revelation 16 gives us the seven bold judgments of the end times that God will pour out on the ungodly. In Revelation 16, too, we have mention of harmful and painful sores that will afflict the ungodly. It's a direct reemployment of plague six during the Exodus, the plague of boils, lesions on human beings. And then as the chapter continues in verses three and four, we have mention of the sea, rivers, and springs becoming blood, just as it had been with the first Exodus plague when the Nile became blood. A little further down in Revelation 16, verses 10 and 11, we have the kingdom of the beast being plunged into darkness, just as Pharaoh and company had been plunged into darkness during the ninth Exodus plague. And then Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14, tell us about three unclean spirits like frogs. Demonic spirits that rally the troops against the Lord God Almighty. And, of course, frogs had been the second Exodus plague. And then finally, in Revelation 16, 17 to 21, notice this, in the seventh bowl judgment, we end up in verse 21 with great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, Now, I lived in Calgary and had hail that cracked my windshield, but not 100-pound hailstones. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each falling from heaven on the ungodly. And, of course, this picks up on the seventh plague of Egypt, seventh bowl judgment, seventh plague of hail in Exodus. So it's crystal clear, I think, that the Apostle John, as he writes Revelation, wants us to understand these end-time divine judgments that will come. They will come on ungodly, unbelieving people and persecutors of Christians. He wants us to understand that these revelation plagues are terrible escalations of the Exodus plagues. And I say escalations because the revelation plagues are aimed, we notice, not just at a single nation like Egypt, like it had been in the Exodus, but rather the revelation plagues will be aimed at the whole earth to afflict ungodly, unbelieving, idolatrous humanity who live in opposition to God. Again, I'm just the messenger. This is what's in the Word of God. Now, you and I need to be very sober here. We need to take this very, very seriously. It doesn't matter if we have been faithful in attending church for 30, 40, 50 years. The question is are we in Christ or are we not? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Are you born again? Do you have the blessed assurance that Jesus Christ is your ark? The one who, because of his sin-bearing, sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross, will carry you safely over the judgment waters that are coming on godless humanity. Is Jesus Christ your ark? Do you know Jesus as the one who took the wrath of God on your behalf at the cross for your sin against the holy God so that now you don't have to face that wrath? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Is Jesus your all in all? Is He your master? Is He your wrath bearer, your Lord, your friend at the midnight hour, your coming captain and king? Acts 16.31 Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will be saved from what? From wrath. Saved from the new divine plagues that are coming. Saved from the new reversals of creation that are surely coming. It is true what the Bible says. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we can go to your word and we can study it and understand it and talk about theories and all of that stuff and it's good. But Lord, at the end of the day, what we need to understand in the depth of our being and our bones and our spirit is that the plagues in Exodus are just a precursor to what's coming on the ungodly. May each of us examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in Christ, first of all, and with this word now, help us by your Holy Spirit to be proactive this week in going out into all the world and making disciples as you have commanded us, telling people the good news of what Jesus has done and who he is. Would you help us this week, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. wanted to read you an interesting benediction today. In 1947, uh, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, in those caves, they discovered a document called The Rule of the Community for the Qumran community. So the Apostle John was contemporary with the Qumran community. And here's a benediction that is in this document called The Rule of Community. May God bless you with everything good, and may he protect you from everything bad. May he illuminate your heart with the discernment of life and grace you with eternal knowledge. May he lift upon you the countenance of his favor for eternal peace.